Hello, I'm Ray Reich, founder and CEO of RevOps Squared, and your host of the Metrics That Measure Up podcast. We talk to a wide variety of B2B, SaaS, and cloud thought leaders, executives, investors, and people just like you to discuss the metrics and benchmarks they use to make metrics-informed decisions. Now on to today's show. Welcome to today's episode of the Metrics That Measure Up podcast. Today, we are joined by Lauren Thibodeau, founder of SASCAN. We'll be covering three main topic areas with Lauren today. First, the state of the SaaS industry in Canada. Second, the use of SaaS metrics in early stage SaaS companies. And third, the intersection of customer experience and metrics. Lauren, please take a moment to give a brief overview of your journey to becoming a guest on the Metrics That Measure Up podcast. Well, thanks so much, Ray. And I love how you asked this question. Everything has prepared me for this moment. (laughs) So I'll cover, I guess, three quick stages that have shaped my perspective today. The first is education. I have a unique background. I did four university degrees that cover business, French literature, adult education, and linguistics, including a stint in Belgium. So that sort of prepared me for the second stage, which was a 20-year career in global tech companies, publicly traded large, mostly B2B SaaS, IBM, Cognos, PTC out of Boston and Canaxis. And then the third stage, for almost the last four years now, I've been running my own advisory services practice focused on B2B SaaS companies and really specifically building customer-centric, metrics-savvy SaaS companies in Canada. Oh, someday we're going to have to talk about how you pivoted from linguistics to the SaaS industry and metrics. But um, one of the things that really impressed me was when I started hearing a little bit about SaaScan and the research you're doing across the SaaS ecosystem throughout Canada. So I guess the first question I have for you, because a lot of our guests are SaaS founders and they were thinking about, you know, how large is the SaaS industry in Canada? Is it a market we want to serve? So What are your insights into the state of the SaaS industry in Canada? Yeah, thanks for that question, because it's uh, it's been fascinating as I've peeled back the layers here. I'll maybe start with some quick Canadian trivia for some listeners who may not know Canada as, as intimately. So we have about 38 million people, almost 10x smaller population wise than the US, 10 provinces, three territories, and almost three quarters of our population lives in just three of those provinces. Ontario, Quebec, and British Columbia. Surface area-wise, we're a little bit bigger than the U.S., so we're really spread out, which many people know. I have been fascinated to learn more about the ecosystem that's venture-backed, but first, people probably know some of our biggest and probably most mature SaaS companies. There's publicly traded ones, private ones. You know, people heard of Shopify, OpenText, Constellation Software. Those are, you know, publicly traded large. We also have a couple large Privately held ones, point click care, four billion valuation, apply board out of Waterloo, four billion valuation. And so those are some names people may have heard of. What they might not know is there's this incredible ecosystem. At last count, with our data partner, Elspark Global, we counted 3,170 venture backed SaaS startups in Canada, so almost 3,200 coast to coast. So out of the 10 provinces, there's SaaS companies in all 10. Out of the three territories, there's two out of three territories have SaaS companies represented. 
And that doesn't even include bootstrapped and publicly funded companies. That's a lot of data in there. So about 3,200 SaaS companies in a country of 38 million people. So if we did just kind of pure math, I would say we should have about 30,000 VC-backed SaaS companies in the United States with a population of about 360 million now. And by the way, that's pretty close. So very interesting that the ratios are similar. But one of the challenges when I've talked to Canadian SaaS founders is to really gain scale beyond kind of that initial product market fit, getting to maybe 2 million, even up to 5 million, is they have their eyes on the United States marketplace. So are there any common challenges that you see when a Canadian SaaS entrepreneur is trying to enter the U.S. market? Yeah, I would. And, and I would say just for context, it's anecdotal. I haven't done, you know, quantitative studies on this, but of the 30 or so SaaS companies where I've either been embedded or consulted, I would say there are a couple common challenges. The first is network, just getting into the network and expanding contacts to sell into the U.S. market. Now, there are lots of great organizations in Canada who are enabling and helping founders there, the C100, Canada Silicon Valley Connection, you know, trade missions, and even the Council of Canadian Innovators. But network is the first challenge. The second one, and I have three here, the second is really success can crush a Canadian company if it scales too fast. You know, associate, one of my clients sells to professional associations. The size of the membership base in the U.S. just... 10x, right? And so if you're not prepared with your people, process, and tech, success in the U.S. will crush you. So you have to scale. They're really finding they need to scale fast ahead of landing U.S. customers so that that success doesn't crush them. And then I would say the competition really starts to pay attention. <laughs> Once a Canadian company gets in and starts getting more traction in the U.S., gets on maybe the Gartner Magic Quadrant, you know, you become a real target. We may have been flying under the radar for a while. So really building a moat, whether it's through a community or through other measures, but building that moat so that as we gain traction in the U.S., we are not a huge target. You said something which stimulated the thought, so I'm going to test my hypothesis. Now, I see a lot of SaaS companies in Canada focusing on the SMB more than just enterprise. Is that an accurate assumption? Is that, and is that because of the corporate makeup of Canada versus U.S.? So interestingly, what I would say is perhaps if they're selling to Canadian clients, that may be where they land. A number of the companies, and when I worked at Canaxis, the vast majority of our customers were in the U.S. Point Click Care, the vast majority of their B2B large enterprise customers are in the U.S. So I think that would maybe be, in my view, again, anecdotally from the ones I've seen, perhaps not the case, but it means they need to scale into the U.S. sooner if they want to get those large, large enterprise customers. Let me flip this question. A U.S.-based SaaS company that says, oh, I want to go sell into Canada. Maybe they want to sell to Magna or Bombardier or someone. Are there any cautions or advice you can give to a U.S. SaaS company who wants to enter the Canadian marketplace? Oh, there's a good question that I haven't actually thought too much about. But I would say culturally, you know, if I think of being customer-centric, know the country, know the culture. I would say having worked in both Canadian headquartered large companies and U.S. headquartered companies, there is an assertiveness that comes with being in a U.S. company that's different. In Canada, I'm overgeneralizing, but there's this desire to be humble and to be really listen first, talk second. And I think culturally understanding the customer base and understanding the Canadian culture 
will go so far for any company that wants to do business in Canada. There are huge pockets of innovation here. I would say really understanding the landscape of the market and where the talent base is, where the needs are. There's a huge growing ecosystem of tech companies that need great tools. We're happy to buy from anywhere. And so, yeah, if the tool is great and if the price is right, value's there, go for it. Okay. Well, one of the passions we share and why we're on the podcast together is all around metrics. And there's a lot of, you know, early stage kind of high growth SaaS companies in Canada, and they're trying to validate product market fit. And when I say valid, I mean, gain it and make sure that they really have product market fit. Are there any metrics or benchmarks that you recommend to those very early stage companies that are trying to validate that they have product market fit? Yeah, this is a great question and one that Saskan's done actually a lot of work and in interviews with investors in Canadian SaaS to say, what would you recommend SaaS companies focus on at this early product market fit stage? So I'd call out four or five themes and metrics at this stage. The first is really around onboarding or activation. Are you actually getting customers activated and into the platform? Have they completed whatever onboarding flow you have? Because if they don't get in, they're not active. You know, if you've got half of them in there, you're never going to get value. So that's number one. The second would be some usage metrics. And again, though, in context of what you expect. So if it's a financial piece of software where you're expecting monthly close or quarterly close, don't expect users to be in there daily. So usage metrics and a ratio, maybe it's doubt amount, maybe it's a weekly metric. Are people actually getting in and using the platform? The third would be around a North Star proxy for value, if you will. So you think of McDonald's, right? Hamburgers served. That might be their proxy for value. If we think of a SaaS context, Willful, Wills is a great Canadian SaaS example. So they're disrupting the legal will process. You can do it all on your mobile phone online now. Their proxy for value would be number of wills created. So you need a North Star metric. Don't have a benchmark for that, but you want to see that up and growing. That's number three. I would put Sean Ellis test, right, which we may have, your listeners may know about, but a survey-based metric, which says, how disappointed would you be if this product went away? Very disappointed, somewhat disappointed, not at all disappointed. If 40% or more of your respondents say they'd be very disappointed, that's a pretty good sign you have product market fit. And then the last one would be all around unit economics. So they're never going to be great at this stage. So things like your cost to acquire a customer, your CAC, or your CAC payback period, you want to start understanding what your unit economics are here and getting a baseline. You're never going to be probably ideal, but later on, you want to know where you started so you can improve it. I'll ask you about one more, and this is more for companies and the upper end of commercial enterprise, but that is the percentage of customers who are coming from referrals. Do you think that's an interesting product market fit metric? I do actually, and I haven't seen companies tracking that on any broad scale. I, I see anecdotally that coming in. I, I'm working with a company right now. They have 40 customers. Two of their customers just referred to other big customers. So you could do the stats and track that over time. That's incredible. And that shows a customer-centric company and it shows a real strength, way more powerful than a company's own advertising to get that kind of referral. That's a good one. Yeah, the reason I ask it, I had a company where I was responsible for the go-to-market teams and about 34% of our customers came from referrals. 
And it actually stimulated the thought. And this wasn't even, we didn't have a proactive outbound referral program, but I'm like, if we're getting that many inbound leads from existing customer referrals, maybe we should try to make it more repeatable on an outbound process. Yeah, that's a fabulous line of thinking, Ray. Love that. Well, now we have, and I, by the way, I loved your four and the Sean Ellis test I've never done before. So hopefully that's also new and interesting to a lot of our listeners. But now we've established and we've validated product market fit. Now we want to be more repeatable and scalable in our customer acquisition motion. Are there some new metrics that you recommend as a top priority once we're in that scalability and repeatability mode? Yeah, here I would really focus. I would keep a few of them. I'd keep your PAC payback period, see how that's trending. But I'd really double down on your retention and churn numbers now that you have a volume of data to look at. I delivered a workshop this morning and they were saying, well, none of my customers left, so I have no churn. I said, well, what about dollar value? Oh, well, yeah, a few of them are paying me half of what they used to. Okay, well, that's revenue churn. So you got to think about that as well. I would also look at growth rate. How quickly are you growing your customers, your revenue? Now that you've found product market fit, put fuel on the fire and get that growth rate up quickly and then start to layer in an efficiency metric. Here's something like a burn multiple, right? David Sachs talks about this. How much are you burning to get a net new dollar of ARR? And you should be looking at one or less would be the dream. If you're up around three, you're in trouble. But let's get efficient and start really tracking that as a metric at this stage. And, and here I'm thinking you're maybe around Series A, you're a bit past Series A if you're doing the venture-backed route, that context. You can tell it's a different macroeconomic edition than it was six months ago by the metric you pointed out, burn multiple. I just hosted Brandon Metcalf, who's the founder and CEO of Place Technology, and that was the metric that he really wanted to focus on for more prudent cash management and cash forecasting. So that's interesting, the burn multiple. I like that one. Yeah, it actually is interesting, Ray. I think in Canada, we focus on efficiency perhaps a little bit sooner in the US. I've heard that anecdotally. I've seen companies even before Series A are starting to track that, perhaps because there's maybe less capital overall in the country. There's more competition for it. Investors want to know hey, when I give you a dollar, you're going to know how to use this really efficiently. Like I interviewed Laura Lenz from Omer's Ventures, a partner there two years ago, and she was talking about this at the Series A stage, starting SaaS companies really starting to focus on this. So I agree that context is important, but perhaps so is the context in Canada. You know, it's interesting. I, I know that you have your own podcast. What's your podcast again, Lauren, so the audience hears it? Oh, so thanks so much. So the Metric Stack podcast that I co-host with Alan Villa, who's the co-founder and CEO over at Clipfolio. So Metric Stack, the reason I mentioned it is I also heard a recent podcast you did with David Kellogg, who I call the Yoda of SaaS metrics, and you were talking about cash conversion score. Do you think that's a pretty good metric to measure cash efficiency also? I absolutely do. And I think you want to pick something that you're going to measure. You can't measure a hundred things, but that's a fabulous one. Encourage everyone to listen to that podcast as well. Pick something. You can also, there's the burn ratio, but you can flip it upside down. There's another uh, way to measure it that way. So yes, I do. Pick one, measure your efficiency. Next question, because what you mentioned a lot of your background and customer success was one of the organizations you had a lot of responsibility for. So here's, it's a very generic question. And it is, when should a SaaS company introduce a customer success role? 
Yeah. So the classic, it depends answer is going to come out here, but of course, context is everything. When I deliver workshops to early stage founders, just starting to land customers and revenue, you know, often they're managing customer success. It's founder led. And so once you get to maybe a couple handfuls of customers or some really, really large customers where the founder can no longer do those upfront sales and handle onboarding, support, relationship management, expansion, you'll know that's when you need somebody to get in there and really look after customer success so that the founder can stay focused on those upfront sales. So more questions about customer success. So I like that a couple dozens or when you need to have additional bandwidth and capacity to do renewals or upsells and cross sells. So renewals, who, which organization do you think is best positioned in the earlier stage SaaS companies for renewals? For renewals, I would say, again, there's probably some some outliers here. I think renewals should be a non-conversation. So I think it should sit within customer success. That's the prevailing thought and perspective I have. That's actually less controversial than where should expansion sit, which we may get into. But renewals, I think the main role and responsibility of a customer success organization is to understand the customer's business objective, make sure they're getting value from using the product. They can feedback product enhancement requests and and interact with all the other teams internally, but they should be leading the customer through to renewal. They should be able to forecast the renewal rate with a high degree of accuracy, and they should be able to really understand early warning signs of non-renewal. So 100%, I think that sits in CS. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. We recently did some customer success benchmarking research with Gainsight. And we found a couple inflection points and one on renewal responsibility. One was kind of in that $5 million range where historically it was done by either the founder or sales and then it went to CS. But at 20 million, we started to see an increase in the presence of account managers who took over renewal responsibilities. And then at 50 million, 48% of companies were saying they had a dedicated account management function for renewals, which was I thought was very interesting about those inflection points. Yeah, that, those are great data points. And I would encourage all listeners, if they haven't, to check out your benchmarks and that CS research in particular. I agree. I mean, in my experience at Canaxis, which I was there from when it was 90 million to 150 million in revenue, you know, the renewals and the expansion were handled by account manager, by a farming set of folks in the sales organization. So context is everything and size of company is everything. Well, let's go to a non-controversial topic, as you mentioned just a couple of minutes ago, and that is upsells and cross-sells. You know, if you have a product portfolio that, you know, allows you to have that type of cross-sell and upsell motion, should customer success own that? Or should we have a dedicated account management function or somebody else? Yeah. So here again, I think, and and you'll have great data on this, but here again, I think it depends on the stage of the company, like how large, you know, are you zero to 2 million? Are you two to 10? Are you above 10, above 50? And how complex is the sale? We also want to layer in the customer experience. So this is my perspective. People might argue with me in early stage companies where it's not overly complex as you're learning and building your loyalty of customers. I think CS should focus almost exclusively on the onboarding, adoption, relationship management, and they should be listening and be trained to uncover opportunities and have a process for warmly passing those to sales. It's a different skill set. I also think in the early days, you want to uncover as much 
from your customers as you can about how to make the product better, how to make it stickier. And customers just generally act differently if they think they're talking to a salesperson versus an internal advocate for their success at the company. So my only caveat to that would be don't make it ridiculously difficult and a horrible customer experience. If a customer wants to add one new seat, for goodness sakes, enable your CS person to do that, right? Don't make them pass it and have a kludgy process for sales. If we switch gears and we look at a larger company, you know, even more complex, I think you may, and I've seen this, and I know there's gainsight research on this too, you may have a dedicated team, whether it's in customer success or even in sales, but that's dedicated to expansion revenue that has targets for net dollar retention that really is focused. And they may still be called the customer success, but that's their focus. They have a book of business and they're essentially account managers. Interesting. Your insights and experience and ideas are 100% aligned with the latest research we conducted. And that is only 17% of companies reported that customer success had the primary responsibility for both identification and closing of upsell, cross-sell. To your point, listen, help identify, and then hand it off in a very smooth process if it's truly a more complex cross-sell or upsell. Yeah. I was just going to add to that, Ray. Uh, So that's helpful. In a company now, they're probably half a billion in revenue. Their CS team has a CSQL target. And so they are tasked with identifying these CS qualified leads so that they can then pass those. And there's a process to qualify those. They have a pipeline, they forecast it. And so there's different levels of maturity, but that's a larger, more mature CS org. A whole nother podcast episode. We were so successful with MQLs, marketing qualified leads. Now we have customer success qualified leads and product qualified leads. It's like we're gluttons for punishment in this industry, Lauren. 100%. Well, let's talk about that expansion motion because we're seeing as companies scale that they see a larger percentage of their growth there are coming from existing customer upsell, cross-sell motions than new name. It makes sense. But it's also much more efficient. So if you're looking for efficient growth, it's amazing. Some of the latest benchmarks we have is it's 2.5 times more cost-effective to grow your existing customer than it is to acquire a new customer. Do you see companies using kind of efficiency metrics to measure how productive that expansion motion can be? So I love this question. And the short answer is no. The short answer is no, nowhere near the extent that I think this is a huge untapped opportunity, nowhere near the extent I think they could be. I think there are a couple of reasons for that. One might just be the kinds of companies that I've seen maybe earlier in their life cycle. Certainly as a consultant, those are the ones I've been seeing lately. I also think there is a tendency to invest heavily in upfront sales, rev ops, but neglect or underinvest in customer success and customer success ops in really treating that expansion journey as the inverted pipeline that it is that will eventually dwarf your upfront sales. And so I would send a message to CEOs, CFOs, anyone who's listening who has a budget, make sure you're investing proportionally in that customer success function because like you said, it's 2.5% more cost effective if you're managing that as a funnel and really optimizing it. Yeah, the other thing we found is we talk about net dollar retention or net revenue retention. And there's a lot of talk out there, but one of the things I love to see was that if you had 120% or above net dollar retention, and that's hard to get there if you don't have a usage-based billing model, but your enterprise value to revenue models, multiples could be four to six times higher 
than a company just with 110% net retention. So if it's more efficient to get to 120%, you might even want to think about your product packaging and your organization structure to really drive that expansion revenue to get that at 120% and above NDR. Right? Does that make sense, Lauren? Yeah, it absolutely does. And, and that's part of the journey I see is even just building out ancillary apps, building out a product roadmap that allows you to do that, looking at your pricing that allows you to do that. As companies grow, there's so many levers to pull on outside of customer success that would enable you to get there 100%. You used a word, and it's going to be the last question I have for you today. And you used the word journey. I cannot tell you how much in the last two years as I do research, do podcasts, listen to podcasts, the words customer journey and customer experience are everywhere. And theoretically, I'm 100% on board with you got to give your customers a great experience. You need to understand the customer journey. But my question that I ask a lot of people, especially around customer experience, how do you measure it? How do you know that you have a good customer experience? Any insights on metrics we can use to measure positive CX customer experience? Hundred percent. And this is a question I get a lot as well, Ray. And and there's lots of skepticism. Like, is it airy, fairy, fluffy, or is it actually cold? Can you actually measure it? So it's a challenge, not insurmountable. When I do customer journey mapping work, I always identify a few key initiatives that are going to elevate customer experience. I'll talk about how I measure it employee experience, and overall recurring revenue. And then we baseline it and measure the impact over time. And so for customer experience, you know, you want to look at leading and lagging indicators. So you might look at something like a customer effort score after key interactions. This is actually a better predictor of loyalty and repurchase intent than either NPS or customer satisfaction. So after onboarding, after support, you ask customers, how easy was it? to complete what you wanted to do in onboarding. So that's a leading indicator. NPS, time to head a renewal, is another one. Lagging indicators for CX, your renewal rate. So let's say you map your journey, you identify some low points, you do your customer interviews, they validate these are a problem. You take some steps and your renewal rate, you look at what your renewal rate does. You look at your referrals to your point earlier. Those are some lagging indicators of customer experience. And you want to see what those do. You introduced a new metric that I haven't heard of. That's customer effort. Is that similar to NPS where it's a one to 10 scale after the onboarding is complete? So generally it's one to five is more common. So you want to say based on, you know, your recent onboarding experience, you know, how easy was it for you to complete the onboarding? Extremely easy, somewhat easy, you know, moderate, not so easy, not easy at all. And you want to be in those top two criteria. And then you ask a follow-up. We'd love to know why. And then you start to code for why, some of the reasons, and you can see trends in whether your onboarding is easy or not. There's a great HBR article. I'll send it. Maybe we can link it for listeners on how the impact and predictable value of this metric on loyalty and repurchase intent. That would be great. Please do, Lauren. And for our listening audience, customer effort, a new metric that we've introduced, at least to our Metrics of Major Up audience. So Lauren, unfortunately, we got to wrap up. I could talk to you all day long, but I want to give the audience a chance to get to know you a little bit more on a personal basis through two, maybe even three quick questions. And the first one is, is there a tool that you think every SaaS company should be using to help their early company growth? Yep, I absolutely do. And I'm going to pick two and they're not mine. Love your question. So I would say one is a product usage or engagement tool. 
You need to understand in the SaaS world how customers are interacting with your product. So whether it's a mix panel, a heap, a pendo, a Gainsight PX, something that lets you see behind the glass what your customers are doing. That's number one. Number two is a voice of the customer tool. Surveys, you've got to be able to understand some leading indicators of customer experience, something like a Servicate, a SurveyMonkey. As you grow, maybe a Medallia or a Qualtrics, those are much you know, heavier, more expensive tools, but something to really have your finger on the pulse of the customer experience. Great recommendations. Next question. A lot of people want to be the next great B2B SaaS or cloud founder. So if you were talking to someone who just graduated university and that's what their goal, what advice do you give them, Lauren? I would have three pieces of advice. The first is just go for it. Go for it. Especially in Canada, there is an amazing ecosystem, especially growing quickly for women founders, for racialized founders. There is such a strong supportive ecosystem, incubators, accelerators, funding. Go for it. There are so many people who will help and support you. That's my first piece. My second piece would be find a co-founder because it's hard. If you can, find a co-founder and one of the two of you should know how to code. The companies that I see growing the fastest in Canada, you know, Wattpad just had a beautiful large exit, Fellow, Noibu, they've got a co-founder who knows how to code. And then third, I would say deeply understand the problem you're trying to solve and understand your customer. Mallory Brody, who's this amazing co-founder with Lauren Lake, in a very male, traditionally male industry, construction, they went out crane hunting. They went to construction sites. They took Timbits and Donuts in their hard hats and they interviewed all these construction workers and said, tell us all your problems. Like deeply understand the problem you're trying to solve before you go and build a cool product. That is great advice, Lauren. And I want to thank you for being a guest on the Metrics That Measure Up podcast. It's a real pleasure, Ray. Thanks so much for having me. So that's a wrap to today's episode with Lauren Thibodeau, who's the founder of SASCAN. Highly recommend you go and learn a little bit more about SASCAN. And if you're enjoying the guests that we're having and the content that we're discussing, it would mean the world to us to go ahead and subscribe to the Metrics of Measure Up podcast on your favorite podcast app. Go ahead and give us that five-star recommendation and provide us recommendations on the type of content and guests we can have to make your listening experience even more valuable. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Lauren. Thank you for listening to today's Metrics to Measure Up podcast. If you would like to learn more about B2B SaaS metrics and benchmarks, please visit revopsquared.com.